All right, we'll be in Luke chapter 2, verses 39 to 52. If you have the Pew Bibles, that is on page 858. Well, after a very busy summer uh, this, this past year and a very busy fall, uh, finally on the second Saturday of November, I finally had a free Saturday. I had a free day when I had nothing on the calendar, and I had had a a friend bought me a brisket, uh, this big 11-pound brisket, and gave it to me as a gift when uh, Joe Lefebvre, Joe and Hannah, they were visiting. I I got a smoker, and I was, I'd been smoking some meat, and he's like, dude, you got to smoke a brisket, and he comes over to my house, and he's like, here you go. He like gifts me this brisket, and so didn't have any room for it in my freezer. We threw it in James and Lexi's freezer for like a month or so and then got it out, thawed it out, and I'm like, all right, the day is here. This is going to be awesome. If you know anything about smoking briskets, the key is low and slow, right? It takes a long time. It's an all-day process. It's like an hour to an hour and a half per pound. So I'm, I'm watching all these YouTube videos and getting ready to do this, get up. 5.30 in the morning, I throw it on, and it's like, okay, here we go. I'm committed all day long. This is going to be awesome. Well, one of the things also that um, I didn't know before kind of getting into this is that um, meat does this kind of weird thing like, like our bodies do. It actually sweats, um, and it, it gets rid of, of heat. Uh, so at a certain point, around 150 degrees with a brisket, it kind of starts to sweat, and it goes into what's called a stall, uh, which can take anywhere from two to six hours. Um, and there's really, like, not much you can do. You can kind of wrap it in foil to speed it up, but there's just nothing you can do. You have to wait. And so at, you know, around dinner time, the kids start coming out. I'm, I'm out on the back porch, and, and they're like, is it done yet? Is it done yet? I'm like, no, yeah, it's not done. Like, it's, we got to wait. We got to wait. Well, the hours just keep ticking by, right? And finally, at 10.30 p.m., it was done, okay? 17 hours of me standing there stoking the fire, putting wood on, checking it. And that took a lot of patience, right? And it took a lot of time. And even after it was done, it had to sit for another hour, right? We had to let it rest before we could eat it. So finally, at 11.30 p.m., after starting at 5.30, we were able to finally sample this delicious meat that had been sitting there cooking all day. But I think there's something in that whole process that's very revealing about our own hearts. My kids coming out, is it done yet? Is it done yet? Even me, right? Like, come on. Like, I've been out here all day. When is this thing going to be done? And really, to me, I, I shared that with some, with some folks that was on a Saturday. I shared it the next day. It was just this, like, enlightening moment for me. Like, that's how life works, right? Things take time. And the reality is, of a, the reality with our own hearts is that we want quick fixes to things, right? We want these flash-in-the-pan results. We want quick, immediate growth. But that's not how life works and it's not how the Christian life works. If you're coming to Jesus as some miracle worker or problem solver, like a genie in a lamp, 
then you're not really coming to Jesus. And as we feel, as we've talked about, as we feel this constant barrage from our culture around us to grow and to change and to be better, right? Be a better you in the new year. How can we as God's people live countercultural lives that display a reliance on God for slow and steady growth in grace? It's kind of going to be the main question and the main thing we focus on this morning. But before we get into that and start answering that question, just want to talk a little bit about the context of, of where we've been in Luke. Uh, we're, here, we're here at the end of Luke chapter 2. Luke 1 and 2 really kind of form this introduction uh, to the whole book. The last eight weeks we've been in chapters 1 and 2, we've seen the, the uh, announcements of John's birth and Jesus' birth by the angel Gabriel. We've seen their births. Um, Something interesting here in Luke, the first scene in Luke actually takes place in the temple. Zechariah is in the temple and the angel Gabriel comes. Now this last scene here at the end of chapter 2 takes place with Jesus in the temple. And actually Luke kind of bookends his whole entire gospel uh, with this being in the temple. At the end in Luke chapter 24, after Jesus ascends into heaven, it says they worshipped him and, re- and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So this, this place of the temple is a very important thing for Luke. And as we're kind of getting into this too, we want to be reminded, we want to be good students, we want to be good readers of God's word. And Luke is writing with a purpose, right? We need to pay attention to these details. He, he starts off chapter 1 saying he, that he's writing an orderly account that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So this orderly account, we can, we can trust that this isn't, just, this isn't just some random collection of events, a bunch of random stories about Jesus that are thrown together. It's going somewhere, right? Luke has a purpose in writing, and even just seeing that that picture of the temple in the beginning and the temple in the end that, that kind of ties everything together. Uh, he concludes these first two chapters here of these birth narratives uh, and the childhood of Jesus. As he does that, he concludes all this. He leaves us wrestling with the main question and the main focus of this passage, and that is, who is Jesus? Who is this child, and who is he going to be? Just as Zechariah and Elizabeth's relatives and their neighbors were amazed at John's birth, and they asked, what then will this child be? Even more, the reader is meant to wrestle with this question concerning Jesus. What then will this child be? And we're left with some some questions. We're left with some anticipation as we move in to the rest of Luke. And Luke does a great job building this anticipation and preparing us, the readers and the listeners, for what is to come. One other kind of side note about the descriptions of Jesus' life and his childhood. This is the only account of Jesus' childhood in Luke uh, after his birth. That's the only only recording of Jesus speaking as a child. Uh, There are some questions about the chronology of events Uh, The events in Matthew chapter 2, where the wise men visit and they flee down to Egypt because Herod is wanting to kill Jesus, that's not recorded here. I don't want to get into too much debate about all of this, but there's a lot of different opinions about why. Uh, That might be why Luke omitted that. Um, Most 
most scholars think that Luke was focused geographically on the events that happened in Israel. He's focused on the temple. He's focused on what's happening in and around Jerusalem with Jesus' life and ministry and, and not so much what's going on outside in the Gentile region. So that some say that's why he didn't include it. Uh, I think that's a, it's a good accounting of it. Um, either way, it's, there's not like this big contradiction of, of Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel and, and Luke not recording those events. And I think what Luke is, is doing here, he's, he's focusing on the ordinary events. He's focusing on the ordinary childhood of Jesus. These are not some crazy accounts of Jesus as this miracle working child. Uh, if you have time later, uh, you can write this down if you have time this afternoon or sometime. <laughs> James is shaking his head. Don't tell him. It's short. Uh, you can go read the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. It's very interesting. Just Google it. Um, It'd probably take you less than five minutes to read, but it's this, it's this short, uh, it's this apocryphal version that's not in the scriptures, and you'll, you'll see why, but uh, it begins with this account of Jesus playing by a river, and he's like, he's break, branching it off and pulling it up into, into all these, these pools, and, uh, and then he's, he's sitting there, and he's carving these birds out of clay, and it's the Sabbath day, and these kids who are playing with him are like, angry and they go back and tell Joseph hey Jesus is breaking the Sabbath and Joseph comes and he starts yelling at Jesus and Jesus claps his hands and these 12 clay birds that he carved turn into real birds and start flying away and then later on this kid is walking and he runs into Jesus and Jesus curses him and he drops dead and then the neighbors are mad so Jesus strikes the neighbors blind and just crazy stuff it's, you're just reading it you're like yeah, I know why this isn't in the Bible and why this is not real scripture because it's just crazy. But the, the interesting thing is it actually includes this account here of Jesus in the temple at the end of it. So it's like it's trying to show all these like crazy stories about Jesus doing all these things at like five years old. And then it also includes this account here that we have. But Luke is not interested in trying to paint this fanciful picture of who Jesus is. He's giving us an account of Jesus as a normal child, as a normal human being, as an ordinary person who grew up. And that's kind of, kind of what, what my main focus here is. My main argument is that Jesus' ordinary human growth by the grace of God shows us our need for slow and steady growth in grace. He's showing us how we can relate to Jesus in his humanity, how we have that same need for slow and steady growth in grace. So let's go to the text and see this account here, Luke chapter 2, verses 39 to 52. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, 
Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come this morning to your word, Lord, would you speak to us? Would you show us Christ? Would you show us our Savior? Would you show us from this glimpse of his life who he is, what he has done for us, how we can relate to him because he has related to us? May we grow in our knowledge and our understanding and our love for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing we see here is slow and steady God-graced growth. We see this in the first couple of verses there. Verse 39, they had performed everything according to the law. This passage ties together with what we saw last week when Jesus was presented at the temple, the fulfilling of the law. Luke uses a, a literary device here called an inclusio. So in verse 22, it talked about the time had come for the purification according to the law of Moses. And then he, he kind of bookends the whole thing and saying that they had performed everything. So it kind of wraps that section up. Then he starts here, he has another inclusio, verses 40 and 52. See, verse 40 says, The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So Luke bookends this section, this story of Jesus in the temple with this idea of him growing, of him increasing in wisdom, of him increasing in favor with God and man. Now this growth here that we see in verse 40, I think it talks about Jesus' physical growth, right? He, he became strong. That's talking about just his physical body. And then he was filled with wisdom. And I think that's pointing us to his spiritual growth. So he grew physically. He grew spiritually. And both of these verbs here for his growth, they're passive verbs. They're showing that it wasn't Jesus just doing something on his own strength. He was being acted upon, right? The grace of God was upon him. So this whole thing is showing us that Jesus, in his humanity, just like us, he's relying on God for his growth. In the same way that we rely on God to grow and to become strong and to be filled with wisdom, Jesus was dependent upon the Father. And I think this, the humanity of Jesus here is what we are meant to see in this passage. Again, he's, he's not just some miracle-working child that we can't relate to. Last week, James did a great job of talking about Simeon's prophecy and how Jesus as Savior would be a divisive figure. And that was pointing forward to his future role, that he would, he would be this figure that, that people would, would divide over, and it's this anticipation of what he would be. So it's almost as if Luke kind of teases us a little bit with that future picture of what he's going to be. But then here he kind of reels us back in and says, hold on a minute, let us sit and ponder, let us sit slowly and ponder Jesus' slow and steady growth in grace as a human being. 
One commentator, uh, Daryl Bach, he says, if Luke were a play, this scene would be a fade to black, meaning that the curtains would close, right? Pausing to reflect on the passing of 12 years. So as, as the scene right before this ends in the temple, the, the curtains close, and then the next time everything changes, right? Characters change, all of a sudden... Jesus appears on the scene, and he's 12 years old, right? So there's this big passing of time. There's this anticipation of what's going to happen. And I think that there would be another fade to black then at the end of this scene, right? So this, this little scene here is kind of, kind of all by itself. We have Jesus here at 12 years old. The curtains are going to close again, and the next time they open, we're going to see John the Baptist coming on the scene, preparing the way for the Lord. That's going to be about 17 or 18 years later, as Jesus is about 30 years old. So this scene, if you will, I think this is really important that we can think about it in this way. This scene really is this, is this chunk of time that's, that's separated off from everything else. And it should ca- cause us to pause and to reflect on the significance of these events. Why is Luke sharing this story with us? And again, it's back to that question. Who is Jesus? We've already seen Earlier in Luke, right, Gabriel told Mary in chapter 1, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. Then he goes on to say he will be called the Son of God. When the angel announced his birth to the shepherds in chapter 2, he said, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So he's, he's going to be the Savior. He's the Messiah. So that's, that's one of the things about who Jesus is and who he's going to be. And there's this, there's this wrestling with his, his humanity and his deity. And we see that when we sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. We've sang that during the Christmas season. We praise God with these words. We say, Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come. Offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And it's this mysterious truth of two natures united in one divine person. God and man united in the person of Christ. Two natures. And we were, when we recite the Nicene Creed, we declare that we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. Begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. And it's this wrestling with who is Jesus? How can he be both God and man at the same time? Luke has already told us that he is the son of God, that he's going to be the savior. But now we're here in this picture in the temple and we just, we see this young boy who's living a pretty ordinary life. And again, rather than making up some crazy stories about this miracle working five-year-old, Luke tells us the truth about Jesus. Yes, he is the only son of God begotten of the Father before all ages. Yes, he is of the same essence as the Father. And he veiled himself in human flesh by becoming human and dwelling among us, Jesus our Emmanuel. Well, so what's the big deal about all of this? 
I remember my junior year in college, I, I moved off campus my sophomore year, and then I moved back on, back into the dorms my junior year, and I was, you know, excited about sharing the gospel with, with some of the other kids. There were some freshmen in my dorm that I lived next to, these guys right next door to me, and I would, I would talk to them a lot about, about Jesus, and I remember one conversation I had with one of the guys, and he, he kept saying, like, well, I can't be as close to God as, like, he was making these arguments about the tradition he grew up in, like, well, the clergy are so much closer to God than I can ever be. And I think really for him, that was just kind of his excuse of just saying, like, I don't really want to pursue God, and I don't want to, I don't want to try to live the Christian life because I can't ever be as close to God as some of these other people can be. But I just would, I would tell him that that's simply not true, right? If you're in Christ, you can be as close to him as any other person can be. And I think Jesus' entire life and ministry obliterates this false idea that certain people can be closer to God than other people. Or somehow they help us get closer to God because of their position or their rank. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus' very humanity, the fact that he suffered when he was tempted, just as we are, It points us to the fact that it is he alone who can go before God on our behalf as our high priest. And that is the mystery of the gospel. That's the crazy thing that the author of Hebrews was trying to communicate to those who were coming out of Judaism in the first century. That the high priest, the one that they looked at who was was holier than them, right? He went before God. He went into the Holy of Holies one time a year to make a sacrifice on behalf of the people. That Jesus himself is the final and ultimate high priest. That he himself, the very priest himself, crawled up on the altar and laid down his life as the final sacrifice for sin. They had no box for that. They had no, that would have never happened, right? The high priest in Israel would not have went into the Holy of Holies and, and laid down his own life. It would have made no sense to them. The deliverance that God's people have been waiting for for centuries, longing for. We saw it last week in Simeon and Anna. They were longing, they were waiting for the consolation of Israel. It's here. He's here. But Luke doesn't just go straight to Jesus' claims to be God, or he doesn't go straight to the cross here. He closes the curtain here so that we will sit and ponder who Jesus is and what he has done for us. I may have shared this before... um, I think this is really helpful. We can't, we can't read the Bible as a first century person, right? We can't read it the way they would have read it. We can't read it here, you know, as believers who, who know the story. We can't read it as someone on the outskirts who might have heard the message for the first time. Or maybe someone was gathered and they heard the gospel of Luke being read, right? They're hearing this for the first time. They don't know what's coming, Right? They, don't, they, they hear these predictions, and they're looking forward. Well, we already know the end of the story. And, and here's, the, here's the little picture. If you've seen the movie The Sixth Sense, um, it's an old movie, and I'm going to ruin it for you. So if you haven't seen it, sorry. But the first time you watch the movie, there's, nobody sees the ending coming, right? 
Bruce Willis, one of the main characters, he's, he's dead, right? He's, he's dead the whole time. And you find out in the end of the movie that he's really dead, okay? Well, you don't see that coming the whole time, and then you see it. How are you going to watch the movie this, the same way the second time? You can't, right? Like, it's ruined. And even if you loved that movie, you're not going to watch it the second time. Like, what's going to happen? It's just the story's ruined. Now, I'm not saying the gospel story is ruined for us, but I'm saying we can't read it. We can't read the beginning of Luke and say, I don't know what's going to happen here, right? We know what's going to happen. But I want you to think about that analogy because we need to try to put ourselves in the position of we've never heard this before, right? When we read Luke chapter 2 and when we think about the anticipation of who Jesus is and what he's going to do, we need to try to put ourselves in that story as if we're sitting there hearing it for the first time. Because otherwise it's just like, okay, yeah, I heard that before, right? And that's not how we should approach Scripture. That's not how we should read these things and anticipate who Jesus is. Like Simeon and Anna, we are waiting, right? We are waiting for the final consummation of all things. So even though we know what's happened, right, and what's happening, there is an anticipation of what is to come. And that's because we live in a broken world. We live in a world where we long and we wait and we ask, how long, O Lord? And we wonder, how do broken lives get fixed? And how does this broken world that we live in get fixed? If you're not a Christian, the answer is that it takes a radical work of grace. If you have not been made new in Christ by the grace of God, then friend, you will never find the answer to your questions, and your broken life will never be fixed until you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, until you bow the knee to him as the King of kings and Lord of lords, you will not find answers to your questions. And if you are a Christian, then no doubt you also wrestle with these same questions. How do broken lives get fixed, right? And how does this broken world get fixed? And the questions that come from that. Like, how does my marriage get fixed? And how does my relationship with my parents or my relationship with my children get fixed? How do I get this addiction under control? How do I fight and kill sin in my life? I think I've shared this devotional with you before, about about this devotional by by Paul Tripp called New Morning Mercies. Uh, It's one for every day of the year. Uh, if you don't have a, a devotional that you're reading this year, I would encourage you to pick this up. You're only five days behind, so uh, by the time it comes in a couple days, uh, you know, you only got a week to catch up if you want to catch up. But this is a great devotional, uh, really gospel-centered, grace-centered. And I, I picked this up the other day, and I, I just read, I don't know why, I turned to December 31st. Um, it was, I don't think it was December 31st. It was already, it was already the new year. Um, but I, I picked this up and just, I turned to the back in anticipation of, um, the new year, or I don't know what I'm talking about. It was, it was already the new year. For whatever reason, I picked up December 31st and I read it and it totally applied to what I was talking about. So that's why I'm reading it. Okay. Sorry. I'm confusing myself. But he talks, he's talking about anticipating the new year, okay? That's why I'm talking about this. We're in that setting, right? He says, well, it's that season once again. It's the fodder for blogs, newspaper articles, TV magazine shows, and far too many Twitter posts. 
It's the time for the annual ritual of dramatic New Year's resolutions fueled by the hope of immediate and significant personal life change. But the reality is that few smokers have actually quit because of a single moment of resolve. Few obese people have become slim and healthy because of one dramatic moment of commitment. Few people who were deeply in debt have changed their financial lifestyles because they resolved to do so as the year gave way, as the old year gave way to the new. And few marriages have been changed by means of one dramatic resolution. Is change important? Yes, it is important for all of us in some ways. Is commitment essential? Of course. In various ways, all of our lives are shaped by the commitments we make. But growth in grace, which has the gospel of Jesus Christ at its heart, simply doesn't rest its hope on big, dramatic moments of change. The fact of the matter is that the transforming work of grace is more of a mundane process than a series of a few dramatic events. Personal heart and life change is always a process. And where does that process take place? It takes place where you and I live every day. And where do we live? Well, we all have the same address. Our lives don't lurch from big moment to big moment. No, we all live in the utterly mundane. Most of us won't be written up in history books. Most of us will make only three or four momentous decisions in our lives. And several decades after we die, the people we leave behind will struggle to remember the things we did. You and I live in little moments. And if God doesn't rule our little moments and doesn't work to recreate us in the middle of them, then there is no hope for us. The little moments of life are profoundly important precisely because they are the little moments that we live in and that form us. This is where I think big drama Christianity gets us into trouble. It can cause us to devalue the significance of the little moments of life and the small change grace that meets us there. And because we devalue the little moments in which we live, we tend not to notice the sin that gets exposed there. We fail to seek the grace that is offered to us. You see, the character of life is not set in two or three dramatic moments, but in 10,000 little moments. The character that is formed in those little moments shapes how we respond to the big moments of life and what makes all of this character change and what makes all of this character change possible. Relentless, transforming, little moment grace. So we wake up each day committed to live in the small moments of our daily lives with open eyes and humble, expectant hearts. I don't know about you, but that really ministered to me. And I need to be reminded of that. Our lives don't just happen in these huge moments, right? It's the day-to-day, day-in, day-out grind And that's the picture that we're given here of Jesus' life as a child, right? We only get this one snippet, but it's just this ordinary life. And why does Luke give us the only, why does he give us this one account? Again, it's because Jesus was not some miracle-working teenager who lived a life that none of us can live. In a little bit, we are going to see a hint, a big hint at Jesus' uniqueness in this passage based on the the one sentence that we have him speaking as a child. But we also see the relative obscurity and the ordinariness of his life as a child, as his growth in grace as a human being. 
So all that to say, now we can, we can dig into the, the bigger, bigger chunk of this passage. We see here this, this search, this anguishing search that Mary and Joseph have. You're probably familiar with this scene. Uh, they come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. Jesus is 12 years old. They go up. They're probably there for about a week. They leave to head home. They're on their way. They're already a day's journey out, and they're looking around, and they're saying, uh-oh, where's Jesus, right? So they frantically go back. They search for him. They finally find him. And where do they find him? Verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking questions. So here we, we kind of start to see, okay, Jesus is not exactly like other children, right? He's 12 years old, and he's sitting there among the teachers in the temple asking questions. And these next few verses that we're going to see are filled with some very stark contrasts. The first one is this contrast in understanding. It says in verse 47 that all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. If you jump down to verse 50 after Jesus tells them why he's there, it says they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. That's the first contrast, this this difference in understanding. The second one is distress versus calm. Verse 48, his parents saw, when they saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. This word here for distress is is a word for actual pain and, and sorrow that is caused. So she's saying, why have you done this to us? Why have you, you caused this distress? So there's this distressful response. But the, the contrast to that is Jesus' response to them, right? In verse 49, he says, why were you looking for me? Like he's, just, he's calm, right? He's just saying, didn't you know where I would be, right? Didn't you know I would be in my father's house? And I want us to think about this. I'm not going to say too much about this. I want to I put this question to you and, and leave it with you to ponder, but Jesus did this on purpose, right? Jesus caused this distress to his parents. Jesus didn't overreact when they found him. How do we respond when God causes distress in our lives? Purposefully, right? By his grace. How do we respond when God purposefully causes distress in our lives? I'll leave you to to ponder that. The next contrast is the contrast between the fathers. Verse 48, Mary says, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father, speaking about Joseph, right? Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Jesus' response was, why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So Jesus is making a very clear contrast here, and this helping us answer the question, who is Jesus? Yes, in earthly terms, he's the son of Joseph, right? But he is the son of his father. The one, every, the father that everyone is at the temple to worship. And I think there's some great irony here, right? That they're there to celebrate the Passover. Here is the Passover lamb. The one who will be crucified as the Passover lamb. Sitting at the feast of Passover with the teachers in the temple. His parents don't understand this. The teachers, they probably don't understand what is going on either. 
And the last contrast then that we see highlights, I think, the significance of this whole passage as we think about Jesus being a child and growing into maturity and experiencing normal life just like us. Verse 51, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. He was submissive to his parents. And notice Mary's response there. Mary, his mother, treasured up all these things in her heart. We've seen that a few times already. Again, Bach in his commentary says, The pondering that Mary does may well be a call to the reader to do the same, in that she pictures what the faithful should do when they encounter truths about Jesus. Like, how can the one who was declared to be the Son of God, whose birth was announced by angels, who has just declared God to be his father while sitting among the teachers of Israel, which is a very bold declaration, by the way. How can this one return home and be submissive to his earthly parents? It's crazy, right? It doesn't make sense. So where's where's the contrast here? We don't see it fully in this passage, right? We see that he's submissive to his parents. We don't see where the big contrast is. That's really only revealed later. It's not something that Mary could have fully understood at this time. This idea that Jesus submitted to his parents is contrasted to the reality of how all things submit to Jesus. This word submissive is used a bunch of times in the New Testament, but I think there's two places where this is really key. So I want us to focus in on those, the the two places that show the contrast between Jesus' submission to his parents as a human child, and then how all things have been put in submission to him. The first one is in Paul's great prayer in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul praises God for his might, and he praises God that he has worked in Christ, the, the might he has worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And then here he says, and he put all things under his feet. That's the same word that's used for submission here when Jesus was submissive to his parents. It says that God the Father put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So this is saying the entire world, the whole cosmos, have been put under Jesus' feet and are submissive to him. And we as his people, the church, right, his body, we are submissive to him. He is the head over all things. And then the second one comes from Hebrews chapter 2. This one's a little bit longer. If you want to you flip there, if you have the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1001. Familiar with the book of Hebrews, the author makes these arguments in the beginning of Hebrews how Jesus is, is greater than Moses, he's greater than angels, greater than the high priests. And this really ties together nicely, I think, how, what we've been seeing about how Jesus relates to us as humans, and it also is going to lead us very, very fittingly into our observance of the Lord's Supper. In Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. He says, for it was not to angels that God subjected, and, and here's the word, again, this word subjected is the same word as submissive, it's going to be used in verse 8 and verse 9 as well. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. 
It has been testified somewhere, and then he quotes from Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Notice the same language that Paul uses there in Ephesians. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's us, children. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This whole picture of who Jesus is, that he goes back and he's submissive to his parents for the next however many years until John the Baptist comes on the scene and until his public ministry, he's probably living near them People think Joseph has probably already died by this time, but he's there, he's taking care of Mary, he's concerned about her, right? He's he's living a good chunk of his adult life in obscurity. The one for whom, the one who created all things, right? The one to whom all things must bow down. The one for whom the Father put all things under his feet. Here we see him living in submission to his parents. And it blows your mind, right? We talk about, again, God and man in, 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 in one person, right? His divine nature and his human nature, and it, it's hard to figure out, but what a beautiful picture here of that, of him living an ordinary life in submission to his parents, knowing all the while what he was going to do, and that all of creation would one day bow down to him and worship him. And this picture in Hebrews 2 here of what he would do, what he would ultimately do for us, that he would go to the cross, that the high priest would lay down his life, and that he would destroy the power of death, the one who has the power of death, the devil, that he would deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery, that he would make propitiation for the sins of his people. He would appease the wrath of God. He would go before us. He would lay down his life. And that's what we come to celebrate when we come to the Lord's Supper. We come to this table saying, there is only one high priest. There is only one sacrifice for sin. And it's Jesus who lived 
the perfect life that we could never live, who lived in perfect submission to his parents, who fulfilled the law in every way, and then who died the death that we could not die for ourselves. That's what the message of the gospel is. That's what we celebrate when we come to the table. When we take the bread, when the bread is broken, we remember his body broken for us. When the wine is poured out, we remember his blood shed for us. This table is for anyone who has trusted in Christ, who has said, I cannot atone for my own sins. I cannot appease the wrath of God by my own works, by my own efforts. I need a savior. I need a perfect sacrifice in my place. If that is you, you're welcome to come to the table and partake. If the service could come down at this time...